0: And in the days ahead, we're going to go forward by faith as well. We're going to trust God uh, for what he's going to do in the next number of years in the life of our fellowship. We're going to trust him together uh, and watch him work as he has in the past for his own glory and for the good of his people. Uh, We're back in Matthew uh, today, Matthew chapter 6. We're in Sermon on the Mount, a famous sermon preached by our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh deliver this magnificent sermon and we're today in verse nine is where we're going to uh, pick up you have uh, sermon notes uh and i think they're probably uh, uh when i say sermon notes actually the thing you write the notes on i think there are four points i need to let you know i'm not going to do all four i'm only going to do two this morning Uh, The final two that I have on there, I couldn't do them justice if I um, attempted to today. Not enough time. I didn't think you'd want to be here at about (laughs) 1 (laughs) o'clock. This is a familiar uh, text of scripture to believers. Let me read the text in your hearing. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm using it as a title for these verses, in fact, this whole um, part of the text, How to Pray. A subtitle, I guess we could call it, Praying God's Way. The reality is that man left to himself will not pray correctly. His prayers would be unacceptable to God. We know this, not speculatively, but truly because our Lord Jesus demonstrated this in verses 5 through 8. There, he enunciated corrective teaching concerning the prayers that were being prayed in those days. Some prayed hypocritically, and some prayed mindlessly. I've seen, as you have, public benches that has signage which reads pray anytime and anywhere I agree with the sentiment and the encouragement to pray anybody to pray but the activity of prayer is no guarantee that the praying that is encouraged is according to the mind, the will and purpose of God hmm. the reality is that prayer can be prayed wrongly. Do you agree with me on that? Hmm. Jesus here instructs us in what is called the Lord's Prayer how to pray rightly. And this is not the Lord's Prayer actually. This is the disciples' prayer. He teaches us how to pray in accordance with the mind, the will, and the purpose of God. As he begins, you can see there in verse 9, he says, pray then in this way. In this way, those three words really uh, shows us that this prayer is a model prayer to be emulated rather than a script to be recited. Jesus did not say, pray this. He didn't say, you mechanically repeat these words verbatim. But he says, pray like this. So this prayer is not a formula for to be mechanically repeated. In fact, to pray mechanically is not real prayer at all. Prayer is to be communion between the soul of man and Almighty God. When the mind is absently repeating memorized words, that is not communion with God. In fact, a skilled Hollywood actor... Can quote these words verbatim, but not engage in genuine communion or prayer with God. In this prayer, what Jesus is doing here, he is giving us principles for our praying. Principles, of course, govern our thinking, our actions, and here, the content of our prayers. Content that relates to what we may bring before God, that which God wants to. Prayed about. Now, you, let me hasten to add this. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus' teaching on prayer is exhausted by this model prayer, the disciples' prayer. It is not. Even in this sermon, he elaborates further on the subject of prayer in chapter 7 and verses 7 through 11. If you're familiar with your, your scripture, the word of God, you know that later in this ministry, our Lord Jesus taught, for example, and, and Mark that prayer required faith. He taught the men in the upper room discourse the evening of his betrayal, the night before he was crucified the next day, he taught them about praying in his name. He taught them about prayer being for the purpose of glorifying the Son and glorifying God. On another occasion, he taught that prayer must be persistent. He gave parables about it. But here, we have this teaching on prayer. And the first thing our Lord is telling us here is that one must have a right relationship with God. When he says, our Father, who is in heaven. Let's use as our first point. I think you have it written down, his paternity. Our Father, who is in heaven. These words show that disciples have a spiritual relationship with God that makes them his children. They are his spiritual children. And this is an exclusive relationship, father to child, in the spiritual realm that is related only to those who know him through faith in his son. This spiritual fact, by the way, is a matter of divine revelation, which is consequent of the new birth. The disciples, nor we by extension, came to know God as father by natural means. You didn't understand that he's your father or believe in him as your father by anything you could do or did. The reality is it required divine revelation. Jesus teaches us this clearly in Matthew chapter 11. Go there with me. I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. I want you to really to grasp the reality of um, as a Christian how you came to know Him as Father. You didn't have the uh, skill or the ability to discover this on your own. Matthew chapter eleven, verse twenty-seven. Are you there? It says this: Jesus is speaking. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Really, to know them as Father and Son, only they know each other. And you can't know that unless you're part of the Trinity or unless a member of the Trinity reveals one of the members of the Trinity to you. Notice what Jesus says. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus here utters a profound st- statement. He's revealing the sovereign choice of the Son of God to disclose God the Father. And he disclosed that, you see that here, to whom He wills to reveal Him. He revealed God the Father to a sheep. We have a relationship of salvation with him through Christ. And it involves divine revelation. And this revelation is beyond human ability. If Christ hadn't done it, we wouldn't know him. Now, let me help you understand something. A man or woman may know a great deal about God. They may know that he is the Almighty. Almighty. They may know that he is the creator of the universe. And they, in fact, they know this because they know it from the creation, from his, as it says in Romans 1.20, invisible attributes such as his eternal power and divine nature. Men, unregenerate men, walk outdoors. They look up into the heavens and they see all the creation and they recognize God's invisible attributes, his eternal power. They recognize his divine nature by looking at the created order. Men also know that God will judge them. They even know uh, that there is eternal damnation coming. That God is going to send people there. That's why they're always using that word hell. And telling people to go there. They know a lot about God, but they do not know him. There's a big difference in knowing about God and knowing God in a relationship of salvation. Let me insert something here. You've heard of Nicodemus. He came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was the chief teacher in Israel. But Jesus told Nicodemus, who knew a lot about God, knew a lot about the Old Testament, you must be born again. You know about God. But not know him in a saving relationship. There is a false belief that has been around for a number of years. It has a motto that articulates this erroneous idea. And this is it. Quote, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. The basis of this idea is, it seems, Acts chapter 17, verses 28 and 29. The Apostle Paul was in Athens. He had observed that they were very religious. They, were, they had all of these statues, all these idols. He told the idolatrous Athenians that their concept, concept of the divine nature as silver and gold and stone was patently absurd. He says, since men are God's children, how then could the divine nature... Be gold, silver, and stone. He said we're all God's offspring, Paul said. Are God's children. In Acts chapter 17. But Paul didn't mean that we're all God's children. By recreation. We're all God's children by creation. Not all men are God's children spiritually. There isn't any such thing spiritually as the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Scripture is clear. Jesus is clear. He mentioned in interacting with those who rejected him and sought to murder him. He said to those individuals he's interacting with these words from john eight forty four, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is the father of lies jesus says you are of your father the devil in fact, all lost people, their paternity is of the devil. It is not of God. John chapter 8. I have quoted a part of it. I want you to go there and look at something. John chapter 8. You have to understand this reality in the world. This spiritual reality. There are really two sets of people. Those who have God as their father. And those who have the devil as their father. That's the way it is. By the way. Do you wonder why people. Who don't know the Lord. Do the things they do. It's because of who their daddy is. Jesus asserts that there is spiritual paternity. And there is. There is demonic paternity did i tell you to turn turn to john chapter 8 good i would like for you to look at verse 42 hear jesus's words here and camp in on that circle that underline that in your mind these people claimed these uh, jews who rejected christ who wanted to kill him they claimed that God was their father. In verse 41, would you look there for a moment? It says this, uh, you are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. Jesus accused them of doing the deeds of the father, which he elaborates later as being Satan. Uh, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. It took a swipe at the virgin birth of Jesus. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. You want to know who the children of God are? They love Jesus Christ. They love him because they know him. They've been saved by him and they love him. That's how you know. That's one of the ways you know that you are a child of God. If God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God and have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Now you need to understand something. Before we could call him father, before we could pray, as it says in Matthew chapter 6, our father who is in heaven, we were not God's children. In fact, we're described as anything but that before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.2 2 says this. We we're sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.3. Children of wrath. These descriptors reveal our former lost condition when our spiritual paternity was not divine. But when it was demonic. You see what the Lord has saved us from? Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 says this for you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus that's how we've become the sons of God if a person doesn't have faith in Christ Jesus he or she is not a son of God now in John's gospel I'm going to ask you to turn there with me again you don't mind do you I'm glad. Let you see it for yourself. John chapter 1. You do know that you didn't come to the Savior on your own, right? Amen. John chapter 1. Many people didn't receive our Lord when he was here on earth. He was among his people that created the world. And they didn't receive him. Verse 12 of John 1 says this. But as many as received him, to them... He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Who were, verse 13, born not of blood. That is, heritage didn't do it. Nor of the will of the flesh. We didn't make the choice. Nor of the will of man. We couldn't by activity do it. But of God. We were born of God. It's a divine work. It's a new birth. The new birth raised us. Or caused us to become God's children. The new birth was the cause for us receiving Christ as Lord. It's a supernatural work that God the Holy Spirit did in our hearts. And made us what we are as children of God. He did that. Left on our own we would have never come to Christ. Left on our own we would have said no to him. Left on our own, we continue to reject him. We would love our we loved our sin and wanted to go our own way until he came in his grace and he gave us a new birth and we're now the children of God. That's why we can call him Father. Spiritual relationship. Now God is our Father. We call him Father. It's an intimate relationship. As Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says, uh, Abba, Father. Abba, uh, he's Papa. It's an intimate, close relationship. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, and because he indwells every child of God, we're able by his power to uh, cry out, Abba, Father. It's an exclusive relationship. That we have because of his grace. How wonderful is that? Amen. Amen. So, what we do, we come to him and we say, Our Father. We can say, Father. Call him that. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, again, verse 9. There's a little three-letter word. A plural pronoun. Our. O-U-R. Our Father. Meaning we were not saved in isolation. But a part of a family of fellow believers. Yes, we can pray in secret because Jesus told us to do that. As opposed to hypocritical pr- uh, praying. But we can also pray Together, corporately. And we say, our Father. We're going to do that this coming Wednesday. Together we're going to call on our Father. Whenever you pray with another believer and you're saying, our Father, our Father, we're talking about the Father of us all. He is our spiritual Father. People wonder... What is our father like? It's a good question. What is he like? I'm going to tell you what he's like. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. Uh, you can just note this, write him, write him down. And it's, uh, God is likened to a father in that psalm. He is compassionate toward us, He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we'll fail. He knows that we'll sin, but he forgives our transgressions, that psalm says, because he remembers what we are. He is father-like toward us. I know this can be hard for some people because maybe you grew up in a family when you had a bad father, an absent father. And you're thinking about God the father is colored by the reality of an earthly father that wasn't wasn't what he should have been. But don't look at God the Father the way your earthly father was. Because he's not like your earthly daddy. If you had a bad earthly father, don't project onto God the Father what your earthly father was like. Our heavenly father, number one, he's perfect. He cannot fail. He cannot disappoint you. His love is unfailing. It's the kind of father we have. And this father you can pray to him with childlike trust. You don't have to come to him doubting in your mind. Can he do it? Will he do it? Does he want me? No, no, no. You can come in childlike trust to our heavenly father you come to him trusting his power trusting his goodness trusting his wisdom trusting his love when you if you're walking and talking to him or if you're on your knees talking to him if you're in bed talking to him you're talking to your father your heavenly father and all those things and more you come to him now you notice something. In verse 9. Who is in heaven? Heaven is where our father's throne is. Jesus teaches us this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 34. It is from there that he rules the entire universe. Think about this. Your heavenly father is in charge of everything. Isn't that amazing? Your heavenly father is in control of everything. He is in charge of Nothing can happen in this universe apart from his plan, his purpose, his will. When you get on your knees or however you pray, whenever you go to him, that's who you're praying to. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Hmm. He runs the entire universe and that includes Satan and his demons. Demons. They can't do a thing apart from his permission or or his purpose because he is in charge. They have to come and get permission from him to do what God wants them to do for his own purposes. Your enemies. They can't do any more to you than your father wants them to. He has a purpose. He's in charge. He rules the entire universe. His throne is in heaven. Since he is in heaven, he is transcendent, which means that he is greater than and independent of the created order. Our Father's transcendent. Somebody might ask the question. I don't know if you're going to ask it, but I am on your behalf. Well, if he's in heaven sitting on his throne as he's depicted in Scripture, but yet, you teach, and the Bible declares it, that He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Well, somebody tell me then how is it that He's in heaven, our Father who is in heaven, but yet He also is everywhere? That's a good question. I wouldn't have asked it if I didn't have the answer. Here's the deal God especially manifest in heaven. That's His, if you will, headquarters. He can be present here with you right now, and he is, but yet he rules from heaven because God manifests himself specially in heaven. That's our father. Our father who is in heaven. His paternity. That's why we call him our father. Next thing we want to see here in verse 9, hallowed be your name. Hallow, how many times you use that term in a week? Hallow is an archaic English term. Sometimes you'll hear a sports reporter talk about a football field and say it's these hallowed grounds. Or someone's waxing eloquent about an academic institution uh, that has long standing and they say these hallowed halls of academia (laughs) usually we don't hear that word used the word hallow translates the Greek hagiatzo Hageatzo means to treat as holy to set apart as holy when we pray hallowed be your name we're asking God to set apart as holy his name in fact, the word hallowed in the in the original is an imperative. It's calling on God to cause his name to be treated as holy. This is an imperative in this first petition. We're to say, God, cause your name to be treated as holy. That's how we're to pray. We're to come to him, first of all, interested and concerned about his name, his honor. Why? Because of who he is. He is supremely and uniquely holy. There is no one like him. God, in fact, asked the question in Isaiah 44:6, Who is like me? The obvious answer is no one, Lord. And you see that repeated in the Old Testament: Who is like me? There is none like him, there is no other. He's unique. we're to treat his name with honor with reverence we're never to treat his name lightly or uh, or as something common God has always been concerned about his name in the Decalogue the Ten Commandments Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 he says do not take it in vain and what people would do they would uh, to improve their lack of uh, truthfulness or integrity they say I swear by God To take his name in vain. To take God's name in vain is to dishonor it. To dishonor his character by using it irreverently. His name is to be honored, and God has always been concerned about his name. I've said that, haven't I? I want to show you. Go with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. I want you to see something. Ezekiel chapter 36. verse 22 I'm going to tell you something we uh, believers we name his name do we not Ezekiel 36 verse 22 I I want you to see what God is doing here he's saying something about his name therefore say to the house of Israel thus says the Lord it is not for your sake O house of Israel that I am about to act verse 22 of ezekiel 36 but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went verse 23 i will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst then the nations will know that i am the lord declares the lord god when i prove myself holy among you in their sight they had besmirched israel had yahweh's name by their sinful actions but God acted on Israel's behalf, not for their sake, but for his name's sake. What he's going to do, what he did here this has been done. He acted in grace and faithfulness because of his name. He said, I will vindicate my great name. Psalm 23. Verse 4, write this down. Listen, you've you've read this and quoted this, memorized it, Psalm 23 and verse 4 in particular. It says, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You know what God does? When you get off track and even when you don't, he is guiding you, getting you back on track or guiding you for his name's sake. For the honor of his own name. You identify with him and he wants to make sure you represent him rightly. The honor of his name, honor of his glory, which is the highest of all divine motives. He guides the believers in paths of righteousness. Now, when we read here in the disciples' prayer, hallowed be your name. We're asking Him, first of all, to work in our own lives that we might honor it by a godly life. Name, let's talk about it for a moment. It's more than a label. When we speak of God's name, it refers to as D.A. Carson writes to God himself. It refers to God himself as he is and has revealed himself. It has to do with the very Godhood of God. End of quote. When we talk about God's name, we're talking about God being God. Revealed himself as such. See this clearly all over the the word of God. Um, There's a text. You know, Moses wanted to see his glory. You remember that? Think there are some Bible readers out there. Exodus 30, four. 34. Exodus 34. Go to Exodus. I'm, I'm going to stay there for a moment. Exodus chapter 30, 33. I told you 34. 33 is where I want you to look first of all. verse 18 and moses said this i pray you show me your glory and he said god replied to moses i myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the lord before you and i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious and will show compassion on whom i will show compassion chapter 34 you drop down there it says five and through seven chapter 34 The Lord descended. Here he's going to do what he just promised in chapter 33. He says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty, unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. What God is proclaiming there is his name, what he is like. You want to know what God is like? Ask him. He lays it out in his word. You remember the burning bush? There's a... F- fascinating experience Moses. It's in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. Exodus 3 14 and 15. A bush that burned but wasn't consumed <laughs> And in verse fourteen, God said to Moses, "I am who I am." Because He wondered, "What's your name?" Verse thirteen. He says it. What is His name? What shall I say to them? Because they'll ask him, "Well, who sent me? What's His name?" They'll say that to Moses. Moses said, "Okay, God, that's what they're going to ask me." And God said to him, "I am who I am." You say, "What kind of name is that?" <laughs> "I am who I am." Whoa, what? I am who I am is a tetragrammaton. And it's four Hebrew letters is really what's comprised of this. And what this means is self-existence. It's eternal self-existence. God is eternally present. He never was. He just always has been. He is the I am. Eternally self-existent one so he said, you tell them I am has sent me to you. For God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. That I am who I am, the eternally self-existent one. Only God has a name like that. It reveals who he is. When did God not exist? There's no such thing. When will He not exist? There's no such thing. The eternally self-existent One—that's who He is. That's why He's unique. That's what we mean by hallowing His name. There's some other names He has in the description. I'll give them to you. El Elyon, the Most High God. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord provides in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 verse 6 he said to the father I have manifested or revealed your name to the men you gave me out of the world in other words he revealed to the disciples his character his nature his attributes but I'm going to tell you what the supreme manifestation of God's name is none other than Jesus Christ himself he completely and perfectly revealed God's name you say, he did? Yes. You want to know what the Father's like? J- Jesus said in John chapter fourteen nine. he said to Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus Christ fully and completely, perfectly revealed the Father. Colossians 2.9 says this. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Says about Jesus Christ the son. He is the exact representation of his nature. God's nature. Jesus revealed him. In himself. Now. When you are. And I'm praying, hallowed be your name. We need to understand something. Understand what we're doing. I've alluded to it earlier, and I'm going to mention it again. And I'm going to use the Heidelberg Catechism as a way of instructing in truths, biblical truths, the catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism. Question 122 expounds what this first petition is saying to us. Listen to it grant us first rightly to know thee and to sanctify glorify and praise thee in all thy works in which thy power wisdom goodness justice mercy and truth are clearly displayed and further also that we may so order and direct our whole lives our thoughts words and actions that thy name may never be blasphemed But honored and praised on our account. End of quote. First thing we want to do when we say God hallowed be your name. Make sure our own lives are consistent with his truth. That we honor his name. When we pray this petition to the father. We pray that God would make known to people everywhere the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only Savior, Lord, and mediator between God and men. We pray this petition that the the world will see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Even in the city limits of Norman. Among lost family members friends and associates. God, hallowed be your name. Uh, let people see your glory, that the honor and reverence you. See your glory in Jesus Christ. Joel Beaky Ask quote, does your life validate your prayers? Or do you pray for God's name to be hallowed while living an unhallowed life? Is your life marked by actions that hallow God's name, such as repentance from sin, heartfelt trust, conscientious obedience to his word, and unstinting thankfulness? Do you adore God with your life? Does your life set him on high? Are you an example to other believers? Do you mirror his attributes by doing justly? Loving mercy and walking humbly with him as your God. Do you rejoice in the Lord always? End of quote. You see, it's really personal. It's not a matter of just reciting some words from rote. It's a matter of asking God to cause his name to be hallowed in your own life. May your life hallow his name. May his reputation be enhanced because of your godly life and character. People know that you belong to Christ. May they see in you the glory of God because you're hallowing his name. See, that's how you pray. It's not about you, that's the priority. It's about him. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the truths here. Help us to really understand what this prayer is saying. What Jesus has taught us. May we uh, grasp more deeply as the Spirit of God teaches us. As we meditate upon these truths. We pray for th- those here this morning who may not know you as Father. Because of their sin. May they turn to exact representation of your nature, Jesus Christ, and receive from Him salvation in the repentance of their sin and trust in Him as Savior and Lord. Pray you work in those people's lives who need that desperately. They can call you Father because they'll be then in your family. We pray for those who are in your family and need a church home they'll join here and grow with us serve here with us it's a community of people who call you father and we pray this for your own glory honor and advancement of your church through your son the lord jesus christ in whose name i pray amen Amen. we have two people here as you can see and they want to help you uh, with what i just prayed if you want to